0: Welcome to the first episode of the John David Ebert podcast. I'm your host, John David Ebert, and I'm the author of 26 books, uh, the four most important of which I think are Art After Metaphysics, uh, The Age of Catastrophe, The New Media Invasion, and Dead Celebrities, Living Icons. And uh, My co-hosts on the show will be Leon Sandler, uh, a writer who also teaches English overseas as a second language in Istanbul uh, and Athens regularly. And from Australia, my other co-host is Matthew Keegan, a business and marketing consultant. And what we propose to do in this podcast is, uh, with every episode, to analyze a different text, a different work of cultural discourse, uh, and just see where it takes us as we discuss the texts uh, and look at them for their uh, contemporary uh, socio-political, and cultural implications. And on this first episode, we'll be looking at Jill Deleuze's 1992 text, Uh, Postscript on the Societies of Control. It's a very short text, but it's very dense and it's been one of his most cited texts. So uh, join all three of us now for uh, an hour or so of discussion as we delve into uh, Deleuze's text. This is the first episode of the John David Ebert podcast uh, with my co-hosts here, Leon Sandler and Matthew Keegan. And uh, what we'd like to do is to start by discussing one of Deleuze's most heavily cited texts. I mean, everyone cites it, the postscript on societies of control, uh, which he composed near the end of his life. He died in 1995. So this is uh, 92 when he composed this. Um, And it's had an influence, I think, out of all proportion to its size. It's just a few pages. Um, and in it, I, I, I get the sense that um, he's building off of Foucault, which he, and by the way, if anyone wants to read the best book ever written about Foucault, read Deleuze's book on Foucault. It's it's clarified so many things about Foucault for me that it's just, it was an eye opener. He really understood Foucault. And so Foucault has this idea where um, he's got these different stages uh, of Western European history, and they differ. Each time he, in each one of the books that he does, it's different. Uh, In The Order of Things, for instance, uh, it's three distinctly different stages, the Renaissance, episteme, what he calls the episteme, which is the structural modality of an age. And for Foucault, um, each one of these ages uh, is structural in the sense that they're built up out of these strata, And uh, so you have the Renaissance episteme and then we have the classical episteme, which comes in to displace it in the 17th century. Both of those are essentially what he means later by the sovereign age. Uh, They're both comprised under the sovereign age, the Renaissance and the classical episteme. And uh, the sovereign age is the rule of kingly authority. All institutions refer back to the king. Uh, If somebody is going to be punished, they're going to be punished uh, in public so that if you commit a crime, Under the sovereign age, um, you've committed a crime not against society but against the king specifically. So he wants to make sure that in public you are tortured and humiliated so everyone understands what will happen uh, if you commit a crime which is a direct offense to the king. That's the sovereign age, sovereign authority, everything refers back to him. So then we have with uh, along about the end of the 18th century, about the time of the French Revolution, Foucault's big epoch that he studied, I think, in all of his books in in very thorough detail is the disciplinary society, which is the age where institutions come in now. Um, You get the hospital, you get um, uh, the first sort of the prison comes in now, and the soul of the person is tormented, because now if you commit a crime under the disciplinary regime, you've committed a crime against society. And so your soul is tormented, not your body. And so we get all these different institutions. We get the school coming in. We get the barracks. We get everything is a mold. Uh, As Deleuze says in this essay here on Postscript uh, for the Societies of Control, that each one of these institutions is a kind of mold into which you are inserted and to which you must conform. And so uh, we're always moving from one mold to the next, from uh, the school to the barracks to perhaps the hospital every now and then, possibly to the prison. Uh, we're always moving from one mold to the next. Uh, and these uh, disciplinary molds are something that we have to conform to. But then uh, Deleuze then, I think, uh, comes in and he adds this age, taking, I think, the term control from William Burroughs um, for the Society of Control, where now the, it's not the factory anymore, it's the corporation. The corporation comes in and you're never finished. Every, it's, it's no longer molds that you have to conform to it's modulation. Your entire life now is modulated by the society of control, which is electronic and digital. And the corporation is the primary entity, not the factory. And we're, we're never done with the institutions. The institutions aren't molds anymore. They, we, they just spill out. Um, if you're wearing an ankle bracelet, you're no longer in the prison. But now you're stuck with an ankle bracelet in your house. So the prison spills out into the, into the, the society. Education is never finished. We're always continuing our education. We're, we're always taking classes. Education is not something finished. So none of these molds any longer is self-contained. Um, they're all in a process of disintegration. And we're always trying to modulate our lives and our activities to suit this society of control, which is always watching us with RFID chips uh, or whatever the case may be. So it's always a, a case where we're uh, you know, And Deleuze says, it's not an accident that uh, surfing comes in now as the primary sports instead of the traditional sports. Um, now it's surfing. That you insert yourself into a wave and you modulate yourself in accordance with the wave. And so this is uh, Deleuze adding, uh, I think, this necessary epoch onto a bu- building off of Foucault. And uh, it's just, uh, that's my. In a nutshell, that's my synopsis of of this uh, little paper.
1: Great. Well, thank you for the synopsis, John. Um, As you said, this is something that Deleuze wrote towards the end of his life, and it's received a pretty wide audience. Uh, It's continued to be popular and to be cited in scholarly work throughout the 90s up until today. And I guess one thing that interested me about this text in particular, and one reason why I wanted to start this podcast using this text uh, is because it seems to indicate a very prevalent, uh, again, system of control in our present moment. Um, what really interested me here was Deleuze's claim that, you know, as the control society expands from different molds, from the factory, uh, the school, the hospital, into a kind of um, omnipresent system, uh, doesn't necessarily make things more stable. In fact, he claims that everything is in crisis and all of these old forms of discipline are dying away. And so I've always seen this text in a kind of ambiguous light, um, where on the one hand, uh, Deleuze is kind of issuing a warning about potential futures in which there is no easy way out of these structures of control, you know. Uh but at the same time there's the sense in which um these new systems of control offer new possibilities of resistance.
2: And so and so what do you see those possibilities of resistance being, Leon? That's the that's the thing I trouble a good
0: question. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's what I trouble struggle to grasp is what are these new um modes of resistance? Because And just to bring in your essay, John, on hyper-modernity, sorry to like diverge a little bit, but you talk about Marxism's dead, the community's dead and art is dead. And I've always seen art as a very important mode of resistance. And it's interesting to me that Deleuze, who writes about art quite a bit, only has one sentence in this short essay where he mentions it. Right, yeah. And it's a negative sentence.
0: I noticed that too, yeah.
2: So I like, so I want to, that's kind of what I want to know. I want to know what these new, yeah, like what these new weapons are that he mentions. If, if you can, yeah, point me in the right direction at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of interesting because he doesn't outline a specific program here. You know, he just points at certain possibilities that he sees developing. Um, But one thing that I keep thinking about is the notion of crisis, right? As he says, you know, today, what is it? The uh, Here it is. The family is in crisis, right? All these different interiors are in crisis. And that's really how I am starting to see our present historical moment as one ongoing perpetual crisis, right? Economic, political, ecological, social Um, it's not so much that this essay points to specific ideas for how to improve the world. It's more that I think he was trying to identify how he saw these
0: systems of social control changing and adapting, um, on the horizon. Yeah, it's like, we're always in crisis and we're now, because these institutions that we've inherited are, are now leaky and they're just leaking all over the place And we're stuck with the residue. It's like we have to live our lives under this regime of these disintegrating institutions that just like keep sticking to us. And it's like we can't ever quite get them uh, wiped off, you know, somatically of of our bodies and our minds. We're just stuck with this constant Mm -hmm. process of education, constant process of in and out of the hospital, in and out of the prison. Uh, You know, it's like, where does this, point to? I mean, where, where does it go? Uh, what happens when... Uh, is there ever going to be a point where these institutions are no longer exerting any kind of influence over our lives? Or is it... Uh, oh, this is another question too. I mean, does the society of control... How much is the old model of center periphery still... How, how much does that still apply where the control... If you're trying to control something, there's always like a center of power that's exerting a force out over a periphery, you know, like with the panopticon model that uh, Foucault came up with, where, you know, the prison, you're in the prison and you're constantly being monitored in a 360 degree radius, like the Greek god, uh, what's his name, Argos, who has a thousand eyes and he can see in all different directions. So there's nowhere you can go where he can't see you. That's the panopticon model. And it seems that was part of the disciplinary society, but it seems like it's carried over now in an electronified version where uh, we're constantly under surveillance by uh, digital technology from these uh, digital uh, technologies from these shadowy corporations that are constantly just keeping tabs on us. It's like, why do I have to get an update from Microsoft on my computer? You know, constantly, I'm constantly receiving updates whether I like them or not, but what if it's the case that I don't like them and I don't want them, you know, but it's like, we're just sort of force-fed this, um, this control now, which is decentralized. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a center. In the sovereign age, at least you knew where the persecution was coming from. It was the king. You know, if you pissed the king off, at least you knew who was persecuting you. Or in the, even in the disciplinary society, you knew that the institution was unhappy with your behavior. And if you wanted to get out of it, you had to conform to that behavior but it's like now it's uh, no pleasing any of these institutions because they're constantly interfering with our lives. So anyhow, that's uh, kind of what it makes me think of.
2: He, he says something. Um, like, I can't find it at the moment, but he said, he said something that, that we, we are now all free floating and mm. we're, we're not individuals with individuals, I believe is individuals, the, term, yeah, yeah, right. is the term he uses. And we, we are, um, so we're like we're caught in um, banks, so data banks and things like that, and you you point at it there, John. Like at least in the disciplinary um, society, you had the prison you could see and you knew in a sense that you were in the prison. It was concrete, whereas now you kind of still are in a prison, but you're in this this different type of prison that you can't you can't quite grasp. You can't completely see you've you're forced into this' just like it's it's control you're forced down this narrow path and uh-huh. yeah and you can't completely see it or grasp it because it we just free-floating because it's it's digital it's more liquid if that I do yeah. I do
0: like the way in light of that, that that he cites Kafka as a like a as transitional between yeah. The, yeah. the disciplinary and the control society because in Kafka it's like there's no end. You're, you're, you know, he winds through this labyrinth in the trial looking for, he doesn't even know what he's being accused of. It's never even specified. He just knows he's under suspicion, you know? And so, and he spends the entire narrative trying to find a way through this labyrinth to find a source from where this persecution is coming from and uh, who's doing it and why. And it's like, he never finds the answer. And um, so it's, that's, I like that idea of Kafka as the sort of prophet of the Society of Control. He already saw it coming. He already saw this endless process of deferral without resolution. We're always on trial and there's never like a a point where, oh, here's the day of the trial, and now I can hear the sentence. Because you never get there. (laughs) You know, it's in the society of control. It's just, well, we know you've done something wrong. (laughs) It's, It's like, what exactly did I do wrong? Uh, it doesn't matter. We just know you're guilty. And it just goes on and on and on. Uh, it's it's interesting that,
1: again, in, in previous epochs, you had these different um, uh, regiments of of discipline. So these different spaces that you would go through, as he says with Foucault, right? Whether you're being disciplined in the school or disciplined in the military or disciplined in the factory or at work or however you, you phrase it. Um, and you know that made life difficult, but you could also identify where you were, as you said, and you could identify what the limits of that particular institution were, and then you could identify who you were with in that institution. Yeah. So it gives the example of, let's say, factory workers, right? Uh, and if you work in a factory, it's difficult and really unpleasant. You have a boss who's always on you, but you're kind of part of this mass of other people Together, working on this factory floor, and you're all sharing in this condition. Um, so at least that offers uh, some possibility of connection, and we might say like mutual sympathy, and you know something like what Deleuze himself participated in in the '68 protests in, in France. Yeah. Right? The, what we're seeing now is a society where. Uh, it's much more labyrinthine, as you said. There, it's not one institution. It's a it's a giant labyrinth, or uh, Deleuze likens it to the coils of a serpent that just wind around yeah. you and you have yeah, no right. end, right? And so that's that proposes a new problem that he sees on the horizon. He doesn't have an answer for it. He doesn't say, well, here's how we get out of it. Here's how we create a more egalitarian, a more liberated or a more equal or free society. Just as this is kind of... The shape that the method of control is taking now—it's—it's it's constant, labyrinthine. It follows you around, and I think one of the most insidious things about it is how it divides, you know, individuals from each other, and then divides them within themselves. Right. So, going to the example of the factory floor, um, I might not like my job, but I have my coworkers, I have my colleagues. I have everyone that I'm working with and who's struggling with me together. We have the same grievances, the same complaints, and we can begin formulating the same solutions. Um, right now, it feels like you know, the more that we see precarious part-time freelance work, the more individuals are kind of divided from each other and brought into a very atomized society. And the more it feels like people are even divided within themselves. Like when you become, for example, a freelancer, you work and you are your own boss. So you have to kind of discipline yourself. So it's, it's not that you go into a place that disciplines you. It's that you have to internalize and carry this discipline with
0: you at all times. Yeah, I like that idea because it's like, it's, uh, I was wondering about his term, individual. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as the, the, it's, we're no longer individuals, we're individual but the prefix "div" means to divide, but it's also related to the word for two, duo, duo, and it's like, uh, so what, how are we divided now? And it's just so we're not like these monadic individual subjectivities. It's not, it's like the, the society of control now divides us from ourselves. Um, I'd like to explore that idea. I like that a lot about the the individual thing and the, the division, the schism uh, that's now that the control society inflicts upon us. And it's like, is there any way of healing this schism? And what's the nature of this schism? How, how are we individual?
2: He also has a good, just to, he says young people, strangely today, boast of being motivated.
0: Yeah. I caught yeah. that. Yeah.
2: Which I find very interesting in the relation to the, the individual, because we see now that it's people like we see it with Instagram and Facebook and all the, positive motivational posts as though this is, is that is that motivation and is that positivity in itself not a form of control that stems from this society
0: what's a little bit pathetic though about that is that why do people need to be motivated in the first place well how come they're not just doing their stuff and so, i mean the, the idea of like a motivational speaker like tony robbins is like the perfect exemplar of this in this society. It's like, well, why does everyone need to be motivated? Doesn't that presuppose that everyone's just lazy and slothful and they're so overwhelmed with their situation that they don't know which way to go. So they need a guy who can straighten it all out for them, you know, <laughs> yeah. give them the, the Ariadne thread through the labyrinth. How do I figure my life out, Tony? You've got the answer. I know you do.
1: <laughs> right it's people asking in that case to be to, to have a leader asking to have a certain regime to get through but yeah what's interesting about it is that it gets into this idea of like personal branding right and that's that's how i see the dividuation uh in our current society in our current situation right the idea of a personal brand that i'm supposed to be me but I'm also supposed to just have my own brand and get myself out there and promote myself. And, uh, yeah. you know, people who even say you should treat every interaction like a job interview.
0: Right? <laughs> <laughs> so but That's a very the extent, so the extent so to which people
1: believe that. Again. As the whole structure of this thing becomes more labyrinthine, um, you hear a lot today about a crisis particularly among young men or young white men that they feel lost and they don't yeah. quite know what the path to the future is, right? They, they're not quite sure what they're supposed to be doing with the rest of their lives because, again, every societal institution that was originally giving them that kind of guidance, right? Uh, the institution of the family, the institution of marriage, even the institution of um, the office or the job, having the same job for say 30 years, Uh, all that is now being wiped out and it's being replaced by something, as Deleuze points out, a lot more fluid. And so, yeah, I mean, you can see, I think, uh, Tony Robbins or uh, Jordan Peterson, right, as an example of someone who comes in and uh, sees this uh, kind of generation of people being set adrift or being lost within this perpetual labyrinth, never seeing a way towards anything like a, a final definition of success. And then offering, um, you know, a, a series of really trite, you know, pseudo intellectual solutions, right? With, with right. Peterson, it's like, yeah. no, stand up, st- stand up straight, put your shoulders back as one of his Apparently, rules. Apparently
0: like there's only 12 rules for life. Yeah. There's yeah. Just 12, that's it.
1: that's that's kind of what people want as things, as as things get more labyrinthine and more confusing. And uh, I think you're seeing this um, regression to very simplistic modes of rhetoric, very simplistic ideas Mm -hmm. as a way to deal with the, uh, what Deleuze calls the winding coils of this serpent that are hard to navigate. Right. And we see it in uh, the rhetoric of, of people like Trump or Bolsonaro or names Want, you know, oh, it's it's really simple. Uh, these are the bad guys. Here are the good guys. We're gonna build a wall to separate the, the good guys from the bad guys, and then everything will be clean and neat and easy. It's it's a way of like it's a that kind of conceptual model. Like the conceptual model of the wall is a lot easier to think about in your head than uh, you know the conceptual model of global capitalism, which is constantly you know, shifting borders and constantly uh, changing, uh, you know, the demands on people in different parts of the world. And
0: right.
1: that's all hard to grasp. But the idea of uh, one leader, you know, one folk, one wall, uh, th- that's conceptually easier. And it's more like the disciplinary society that Deleuze and Foucault, you know, through Foucault, describes in the first part of the
0: essay. Yeah. Make America great again, that's it. That's all there is, it's just one idea and this is how we do it. And Um, is this,
2: oh sorry, sorry John.
0: No, that was it, I was just throwing that out there to to fuck around
2: with. But is this like um, to go back on Deleuze and Foucault's like one of their major influences, is this not what Nietzsche was talking about in a sense where Nietzsche says there's multiple interpretations the 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 left nature if you will um, whereas there's not just this one way because what i keep seem to come back to is that we just in we always are told that the goal is this this happiness this like this pot of gold at the end of the path or at the end of the rainbow and it's it's happiness and so then you become overwhelmed when you're not instantly happy and we've got so much stuff coming at us all the time but is it not that happiness is not the aim, that maybe there's something deeper, something more authentic, that maybe Nietzsche was referring to when he talked about multiple interpretations of things, mm-hmm. going outside yeah, I mean, those. There was never
0: that, a more ambiguous thinker than Nietzsche, and he loved like, taking up different positions, like even against himself. He, he loved even just uh, playing devil's advocate with himself, uh, just to fuck with you, the reader, and he yeah. enjoyed, you know, he, he just enjoyed upsetting you, the reader. That was like his thing, with all these different kinds of possibilities. And uh, yeah, so you you're never gonna get anything. You're never gonna get a straight answer from Nietzsche. It's just very you know, like he loves ambiguities, and you know, people try to boil him down to like one thing or another. In a certain sense, he's like the philosopher of the control society. He's already looking ahead to it where it's this endless labyrinth and you go this direction or that direction. There is no clear way to go. You just have to surf it. You have to get on it, and modulate the wave, find a wave that you can ride and, and surf your way through it. Who, who knows whether you're getting anywhere. Is a surfer yeah, they, surfing a wave getting anywhere? No, he's just riding the wave until the wave dies. Go ahead. It's
1: it's really interesting. I mean, when you think about, let's say that uh, right now, the end goal that's supposed to be at the end of this labyrinth that we find ourselves in uh, is some kind of, yeah, constant perpetual happiness, right? Whatever that might mean, you know, like any definition of happiness, it has to be just vague enough to work, right? Um, But it's always, as Deleuze says, it's always deferred right? There's always another seminar or another book to read or yeah. another right. job yeah. to, you know. You might make another career change. You might move somewhere else, right? Um, so yeah, this end goal, which I think in previous epochs used to be so clear as the institutions that you made your way through in life were clear. Uh, the end goal itself has become constantly deferred, constantly labyrinthine, um, and that is itself another problem that we, we don't even know how to reach an end goal.
0: Yeah. And, and, is there even one that we know of? I mean, it's like, uh, if you take, uh, Aristotle's idea of the entelechy, the entelechy is always trying to get to a telos. It has a specific goal. Uh, the telos of the tree you know, the acorn uh, has the telos to get to the tree. And then once it's there, it's like, ah, I'm done. I'm tree now. And it's like, well, what about our uh, human lives under the conditions of the control society? What is the telos? And it's like, I don't think anybody has any idea. It just, I'm not even clear what the telos of my life is, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's constantly deferred. Yeah, you know, There's right. always another seminar. It's, <laughs> right. I like that. There's always a, and so well, next weekend.
1: Yeah, go ahead. And so again, you have uh, figures, you know, arising at at our, at our particular historical moment that are offering, I think, quick and easy solutions to these nebulous, uh, serpentine kind of problems. Um, whether those are, you know, again, problems at the level of the nation state or problems psychologically with the individual not knowing where to go, not knowing what they want, not even knowing you know, how it's possible to feel happy anymore in a lot of cases. Um, but what's interesting to me is that all the proposed solutions don't seem to work very well, right? It's, that's what I find so interesting about this particular moment that we're all in. It's you know, one perpetual crisis after the other, yeah. and then different actors proposing different solutions but none of the solutions ever really seem to be solutions, you know. Uh, whether that's you know Trump promising to make America great again and then it's not so great, or you have um, you know the election of let's say a far left party in Greece that promises to leave the EU and then it doesn't, um, or you have let's say on the Tony Robbins Jordan Peterson side of individual motivation and in psychology, uh, you have you know, these rules for life that once you actually drill into them are uh, incredibly simplistic and don't, don't give you that reward at the end of the tunnel that you're always looking for.
0: Yeah, uh, one of my favorite Nietzsche quotes is um, from one of his notebooks uh, where he says, a preponderance of mandarins is a sure sign that something has gone wrong in an age. You know, you're like in uh, China with the thousand schools, uh, the, of whom, you know, most of it's gone because it was all book burned. Uh, but what's left is Confucius and Lao Tzu and Tzu and a few guys, Tuan Tzu, But that was that was a major age of crisis there in China in the 7th century uh, down to the 5th century that produced all these schools. And it's like, it's not a sign of intellectual health, I think. it's It's not a sign that an age is doing well. When there's a jillion thinkers and they all have a different solution, because there, uh, you know, something has gone wrong. The the conditions for living have become so problematic in a given age that now we just have, we need to hear a billion different solutions. And it's not like an age, you know, when it was Plato and Aristotle and they just had the Academy and the Lyceum and that's where you went. You know, for, it was very simple and straightforward. Just listen to these guys. It's not like that now. It's just, you know. Jordan Peterson clones a billion of them. Tony Robbins clones a billion of them. And it's, it's too many. It's just, it's too many. It's too many different solutions. And I think it ends up being more confusing than helpful uh, mm-hmm. to hear all this. Uh, what, what, what is, I, I'm thinking of the, uh, the, the, the TED Talks. It's like that. It's that TED Talks mentality. It's like, I can't stand TED Talks. I think they're like the worst intellectual forum ever invented. They're just, they're not motivational. They're depressing. And I find them boring and uninteresting and almost invariably shallow. And they never have a grasp on ambiguity. They're always like, here's the problem. And it's very simple. Let me boil it down. And um, it's not simple. We're living in an age of fractal complexity that everyone feels overwhelmed by, or we wouldn't all be discussing how to live our lives. And um, it is, it's a labyrinth. It's. I, I think that uh, the, the Kafkaesque labyrinth is is like a perfect metaphor for. it.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I'm also not a fan of the TED talks. So I'll just put that out there. But I no. I good. I, I, yeah. <laughs>
0: We're in agreement. I, I will.
2: I will say except except one um one good I I admire him is uh, Sir Ken Robinson. Oh, his stuff on education I think is very very mm-hmm. good. Where he actually talks about um but oh, I'm getting sidetracked. But where he talks about how when you've got uh, you give kindergarten kids a paperclip and they can come up with all these ways to use a paperclip and then if you keep giving it to them it declines as they go further along in schooling which i think kind of says something where they were pushing everyone into these narrow ways of thinking which clear clearly clearly i don't think is working because we've never seen anxiety and depression particularly in youth at such a high rate and um I don't know if that's something because we're we're overstimulated or we're continually told to operate in these narrow ways or told to have this goal. You're told to get it in numerous different ways, as you said, in the labyrinth, and it's just endless. Like, yeah, I mean, I've got a I've got a degree, and I don't use it. And now I'm doing another degree. It's just perpetual education. Yeah, and yeah. What's your uh, What's your degree in, uh, Matthew? Business with marketing, and now and like. <laughs> That's the one you. Would and that's think, still not good no, enough. Good enough. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and then it's like, yeah, and it's just, yeah, it's endless. Leon had a status the other day about about the university system, where it was like twenty six thousand dollars get you a degree. Oh, does it give me work and meaning? And the university system's like, ah, uh, what was it? What's that? Yeah, there's just, yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we no
1: longer see the end point of doing things like that anymore like i i have to i have to get a degree or i have to get this uh, qualification this certification this training but it's never clear that after that i'll arrive at some kind of static state where everything will be fine like mm-hmm. now we don't arrive at a static state where everything's fine that's that idea i think what do we have to do now like we know things are bad we know it's a giant labyrinth we know it's the coils of a serpent and all that so What do we have to do now? Um, I think one thing is we have to abandon the idea of reaching a steady state. right? As hard as that is, we we can't hold on to the idea that, okay, if I just go through one or two or three more things, it's going to be fine. If I just get this degree, that degree, if I just uh, listen to this guru, that guru, uh, the answer will be there at the end. No, we're living in a much more interesting time where you know we have to again, as you said, John, get used to riding the wave, get used to just undulating and going up and down with these different uh, changes and transformations and crises and crashes. So the the less attached we are to one particular end goal, right? The the better I think equipped we are. But then you uh, living in.
2: Sorry. Um, sorry, but then does that mean? that we have to abandon the community does that mean that we have to just concentrate ride the wave in as ourselves and forget is that what is that what you're saying because we ride this wave is that mean like john says in his essay is the community then dead
1: see that's a really interesting question and i'd, I'd like to explore that a yeah. lot because yeah. i think what again one of the biggest problems with the control society right. as Deleuze talks about it is that it divides each of us from each other and divides us within ourselves, right? And if I really had to identify one overarching problem, I would say it's that one, right? It's the fact that, uh, maybe this is just my perspective, but you know, the fact that we're now so atomized and so focused on, again, personal branding and personal success and personal development that it becomes difficult for us to even imagine coming together and getting a shared sense of reality, a shared like agreement on what is actually happening and what can we do? So I don't think it's that we should abandon the community at all. I think we we actually need to try to branch out more and build other communities that um, are built along different lines of identity, different lines of community, right? Your community now might not be just the people that you're physically located with in a particular space. It might be uh, the people who share your language, the people who share some particular subset of your identity, some particular subset of uh, of how you find yourself in this. So yeah, I, I think actually rebuilding a sense of ourselves as integral, you know, people, and then rebuilding the idea that we are in this together, whatever this is, whatever this perpetual crisis may be, we're in it together. Um, Now we, we should definitely do whatever we can to, to keep going with that or to, to bring that back from the dead as, as you know, you might say. And so, yeah, just returning to the text, um, maybe we can go through it a bit and maybe we can think about, you know, so where does that leave us? Right. Where are we now? Are we just lost in a perpetual labyrinth with no hope of escape? Or are there still possibilities for uh, riding this wave or getting through the coils of the serpent in a way that's productive and empowering and
0: maybe you could say joyful well we're left with a lot of dead institutions I mean that's the thing you know that that I get from this essay from Deleuze is is that we're just dealing with these institutions that came about uh with the disintegration of the sovereign society in the age where power was centralized by the king and then uh, that gets displaced to the disciplinary society with all of these separate institutions governing uh, governing our lives and uh, now we're dealing with these all these dying institutions school is dying everyone knows that it's a, the university system is in a total state of chaos prisons are overcrowded um, so now they're having to form out a penality uh, at your house with an ankle bracelet you. You don't have to come to the jail. We'll accommodate you at your house. We'll go meet you there. And uh, it's like all these institutions are like that, the hospital, the, everything. And so, I don't know, it's, it's uh, every single age has its own structures, has its own strata, its own what Foucault would call an episteme that governs the, the, the rules for discourse in that age. And um, I like this idea of the control society that it just won't leave us alone and it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. But um, we're still left with this labyrinth, aren't we? That, that seems like the final image that I'm taking away here is this idea of a labyrinth that uh, doesn't have a goal. It has, It's like a rhizome. It has no beginning, no ending. You can enter it at any point and get stuck and lost in it. And yet somehow it seems to be the best model for where we're at right now. Each, each of us is stuck in a sociocultural maze that we, all we can do is spend our lives trying to navigate through it. And there doesn't seem to be a resolution. There doesn't, we always want a resolution because I think the human mind likes resolutions. It likes a beginning, middle and end. It likes narratives that are like that, but maybe this has no beginning, no middle and no end. And we're just stuck with the, the, the ongoing nowness of it. And, um, I mean, I'm 50 now and I've, so I've lived longer than you guys have. And I can tell you, I don't get any more of a sense of resolution from my life at 50 than I did when I was 30. Zero. It's the same feeling of endless uncertainty, endless deferral, endless, well, I'll try this next and that. And it never does feel like it comes to a resolution, but you want it to, you want to get to the point where you feel like, ah, I met the goal. There it is. It's perfect. But uh, that day never—it doesn't. You'll never get there. Trust me. It's it's so, Kafka, so
1: the labyrinth, and the idea of a way out of the labyrinth or an endpoint to the labyrinth is one mental model that we can think of this as. Yeah, yeah. It's not a particularly cheery one, because yeah, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of almost like Kafka or Borges, like the the labyrinth mm-hmm. is constantly shifting right? Constantly yeah. changing on you, so that whatever you think you have a way out, whenever you think you're free whenever you think you've finally reached uh, the end point, oh, look, you're precarious again, you're deferred again, you're uncertain about the future again. Um, so the labyrinth is one uh, rather imposing mental model that we could use for the control society. But the other would be, let's say, the, the image of the wave that Deleuze brings up uh, with surfing, right? He talks about yeah. now, You know, traditional sports have been replaced by this idea of surfing, of just going with this energy um, rather than exerting your own. And so maybe we can think about this in uh, Deleuze's repertoire as making yourself more nomadic, making yourself more uh, chaotic and more uh, flexible, right? Making yourself more liquid to adapt to you know, what Zygmunt Bauman might call the liquid modernity in which you find yourself where everything is constantly shifting and moving. I mean, it's not so much that, you know, we're looking for a way out and we'll have we'll finally, if we just take the right route, uh, the right route, we'll have our way out. Uh, It's more like we need to adapt ourselves to, uh, you know, to go with the idea that we're living in a a perpetually shifting epoch. Um, and so like, I'm just curious. We need like, to what is, uh, Yeah, go ahead. What does that mean for us? How do we do that? How do we become more nebulous, more um, flexible, or more liquid, or more? Ser- how do we this. become more serpentine ourselves? We might, we might say.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me propose this about surfing, resurfing. Um, I like this idea, uh, you know, about the Z boys in Venice Beach who invented skateboarding. And they invented skateboarding uh, because they were surfers and uh, there was a water drop in Los Angeles. So all the swimming pools were dry in everybody's backyard. And uh, so they they territorialized they, they surfing and they re-territorialized it to the skateboard into these empty swimming pools. And basically what they're doing is surfing air. So they trade one element for the next. They're like, well, we used to surf water when water was abundant. That was an element that we could take for granted. we can't now under the conditions of a drought, but now what we do have is the absence of an element that was there before. And now we surf that. So they just surf the absence of an element. And I kind of like this idea as a model for us, because with the disintegration of the institutional society, the disciplinary society, um, we're absent that element. Those institutions aren't here anymore. And so now we're left with surfing without them. And so we each have to figure out how to, surf, how to modulate our own way through a system that's based on these dead ghosts of these dying institutions, but that nonetheless, that, that we're out of the water, and now we're, we have to learn how to surf the air, and I just like the metaphor that the Z-Boys uh, of Venice Beach came up with uh, about, uh, if, if an element's missing, surf that. <laughs> surf right. the absence of what you had before,
1: and make that work. Um, Right. How how do you feel like that fits into Deleuze's um, concepts that, you know, he was working with Felix Guattari, who he mentions, you know, um, throughout the sixties, he was working on concepts for making yourself more chaotic, more, well, he would say schizophrenic in order to adapt to the contemporary conditions of capitalism. Right. How does that fit into Deleuze's concepts of, um,
0: Becoming a nomad or perpetual and ceaseless becoming? Because we're all becoming nomads now. We're all uh, now starting. The the cold hard truth, I think, is dawning on us now that actually we're all unplugged for social formations. And we're all nomadic now under the conditions of hypermodernity. And you just kind of have to be okay with that because before we, we had, you know, we romanticized the past, the beats, they were great. Wouldn't you like to have been one of the beats or uh, whatever the past social formation is that you romanticize and idealize, they're all gone now. And the, the, the hard truth of the matter is that each of us I think is on our own and uh, each of us is a nomad. So we have to learn how to surf in the absence of an element that used to be there before, but isn't there anymore. And um, I just think that it sounds bad. Each of us is on our own. But on the other hand, it does open up a, a, a lot of creative freedoms to create and design whatever idea for your life that you want to have. You now no longer have to conform to the molds of previous social formations. Oh, I, ha- I got to be a communist. Uh, so I need to make sure I follow the good communist mold and not offend it. Uh, but that's gone. All that's gone now. So you don't have to fit into any molds uh, anymore. So it does open up a lot of new creative possibilities for you to design and shape your life in whatever way your ideal for living that life is now. Um, it's There's a lot of freedom here now. Um, so maybe we should accent uh, that aspect of all this, the, the creative possibilities that it does indeed open up.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely very interesting that as these institutions Decay uh, that might open potential spaces for uh, Mm -hmm. new ways of being. New ways of navigating the world. uh, Because now, uh, as you said, um, there's no particular incentive to follow through with these systems anymore.
0: Mm -mm. Right, the motive is gone. It reminds me of uh, Doris Lessing's novel uh, she's one of my all-time favorite writers, uh, The Good Terrorist, which is about um, a, a group of IRA terrorists. Uh, and it's like, how how do I become a good terrorist? So that I fit myself into the mold of performing what the social formation of uh, IRA terrorism demands of me. And now that's, you don't have to. And the whole novel was about the conflict of these individuals finding themselves I don't feel like I'm a good terrorist. I don't feel like I'm up to the challenge. I feel like I'm a bad terrorist. And it's like, we don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to be a good communist, a good terrorist, a good capitalist. All that's gone now. Just be yourself and figure out what your particular sign regime is going to be and how you're going to unfold these semiotics through hypermodern cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And is that that's something is that yeah. something
1: that we're all kind of condemned to do individually? Right? I mean it's it's this thing where you know, now those institutions that were governing your life before are all in crisis, which leaves you adrift, but it also leaves you free to surf the wave on your own, as you said. Right. Um, exactly. But is that something we all have to do individually? Or is that something that people like the Z-Boys of Venice Beach can come together and do together?
0: Yeah, that's where the the, ch- the challenge comes in, where, where all the anxiety comes in. It's like, all right, I'm doing my own thing. I'm not a good this or a good that. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm doing John Ebert, let's say. Am I doing John Ebert correctly? And so, you know, it doesn't, there's no pre existing model for you to follow to do John Ebert or to do Leon Sandler. It's just your your own model now. And so there isn't any, there aren't any other exemplars to follow except what you are creating as you as you walk along. You're like creating your own path as you walk the footprints that you leave behind you are the path that you've created. There is no path that you're following. So
2: that's what I would like to conclude on is that idea. Unless Matthew, you have anything? Oh, I just wanted to push back a little bit. Um, He says in it that when we talk about the corporation, because in this new space, the corporation is kind of the one that controls us in the society of control he talks about marketing as the, the market marketing as the soul of the corporation. So I want to, I wonder how free I get what you're saying. There's no institution. So we would seem freer, but how free are we actually Mm -hmm. when, when we bring in that you, the whole, you can do anything you want, but you have to do this or you have to do it this way that comes out in marketing and that comes out in, the social media. And then that comes out in just stock standard economic pressures. And um, when we talk about liquid modernity, was that because the safety net of the welfare state's gone. That's what he meant was talking about when he talked about in liquid modernity. Um, I, I can't remember his name, the Polish sociologist, Leon. The yeah. 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 Um, so in liquid modernity, the social, like we've given up the welfare state, for that freedom but you still have that economic pressure you don't have the safety net anymore so while you are freer to to undertake these tasks without that safety net like is is that still narrow is am am i making sense here (laughs) is is that no no like yeah is that still narrow because you have to have that economic freedom to do what you want and then that's right and then to be perceived as what you are doing, what you want, how much does marketing and social media influence that? Are we actually still doing our authentic task or are we just being shifted towards this in enough, just in a different way, just in a non-institutionalized way? Does that make sense? Well, I don't know. I
0: mean, I never got the sense that, uh, I never worried about money ever in my entire life because I didn't give a shit about it. So Um, I've never worried about it and I never knew how I was going to make a living outside of all social formations. The, I, I knew that I was going to live outside the university, so I didn't have that safety net, um, and, or any basic safety net that you would have if you had a nine to five job or, you know, job that you were going to work for 30 years and get a pension, that's all gone anyway. Yeah. And so I, you know, I've, I've just sort of gone from. One, you know, I'll figure out how to pay that bill when I get to it. And it always figures itself out somehow. And, but I, you know, of course I've never had money. So I have been poor most of my life, but I've been, I don't care about it anyway. So I've always made just a sufficient amount to get by. And I think it's a comfort zone with people. Some people are not comfortable just getting by. They wanna make sure they've got uh, the mortgage and the house and the property and the owning lands and all these other things. They try to trick themselves into believing that if they achieve all that, they'll be happy. And I just have never cared for that. And I I just, most of my friends are that way too. Poets and artists and writers all living on the fringes of this society and all just sort of making their way as they go along. And they all seem to figure it out. Um, So there apparently is a logic to this, this way of living out on the fringes of all social formations and not worrying about money. Um, but it depends on your comfort zone. And it's it's different from, you know, individual. Some people just aren't comfortable not having anything. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not. I'm, it, it never bothered me.
2: Yeah. I'm I'm just also trying to get to the, like when we, I'm probably didn't explain myself well enough. So if you want to edit that out, but like, we, we, talk, <laughs> the, the, we talk about free floating and now you can, do you can choose what to do what you want. But how much of how much of that is actually us deciding what we want to do? Because there's still so much anxiety. There's still so much worry about it. It still seems to me as though we are still just in a different way outside of these institutions. So the family institutions. So you get a job, you you raise a family. That's no longer what we what we're told we have to do. But we still Seems to me that we're led down certain paths in this new space that we find ourselves in, For, through primarily it seems to be through marketing, which it and social media, that like you always have to be successful at this thing. You have to be successful and happy and things like that. And then what constitutes success and what constitutes happiness and it just seems to still be narrow to me in the grand right. scheme. Right, you might. A,
1: we might say, are we living in a, in a free floating kind of desert space, or are we living in a much more straighted space where we don't actually have the possibilities for lateral movement or or movement that we think get you.
0: Yeah, I get you. Striated space. Yeah. The issue, and all the flows are coded and no matter what we do there, we always have to deal with the coding of the flows. Um, No flows come free. Um, There's always coding. Yeah, I I get you, Matthew
2: yeah yeah does that yeah, does that make does that make sense am i yeah, am i making sense mm-hmm. on that um right
1: yeah it, it's like we, we may be we may be freer to uh develop parallel structures or to abandon certain life scripts but as Deleuze points out we're not free of mechanisms of control in themselves no.
2: yes yeah. it's yeah. more like yeah, the
1: that's... mechanisms of control become more fluid and we have to become more fluid with them right the more attached we are to a particular end goal or end state or to a particular identity, the, the more caught up we're going to be. Whereas I think, I feel like now because the situation that we're in is so liquid and fluid and mobile, we have to learn to become that ourselves.
2: So Deleuze talks a lot about becoming if memory serves me correctly, does it? Doesn't he John? Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah,
2: that's correct. Yeah, yeah. The Heraclitus becoming. So, yeah. So, um, and I gather that would be his response is that given it's so liquid, you just have to, yeah, you just have to allow yourself to become what you are. And you said it would be more schizophrenic in a Deleuzian, um term, Leon, yes?
1: Right. Not not bound to, I mean, we should explain the words. We yes. Explain so, the idea of schizophrenia as Deleuze is using it. We might say, uh not bound to one particular identity not bound to a fixed sense of self right Mm -hmm. and it's curious like to what extent is that something that's imposed upon us by the nature of the control society and to what extent is it our tool against or we might say our weapon against the control society right allowing myself to let go of one identity and morph into another right um allowing myself to let go of one space, one territory, one career path, and morph into another, uh, is that something I can do to liberate myself? Or is that something that's... Uh,
0: yeah, because maybe we've gotten stuck with this sense of self as a molar aggregate. You know, it's just this large molar aggregate. Uh, here's who I am and what I am. But but I like the and Guattari's idea about adopting the schizophrenic model model. Maybe the self is a micromolecular assemblage. Maybe it's all these different potentialities um, and you don't need to uh, associate yourself with like the single transcendent subject. Uh, transcendental unity of apperception, which is his fancy term for the self. I mean, maybe it doesn't need to be centralized that way. And we can deal with a polytheism of selves within us. Maybe we've inherited the monotheistic, idea of the self from Christianity. And maybe that's too one of the things, one of the structures that the control society has gotten rid of for us. And we can just be uh, polytheistic selves. That's the schizophrenic model. And we don't have to worry about identifying this way or that way. And just it, once again, back to the, the, the model of surfing. Right. Surfing this- it's, it's
1: interesting because we, we used the, the metaphor of the labyrinth before. And I think if we continue to think of it in that way, then it's quite foreboding. So if, if we say, here I am, and I'm trying to navigate this labyrinth to find the end point, to find the way out, uh, to find the ultimate goal of happiness or freedom, um, well, we're never going to get there because, again, the labyrinth will just keep yeah. shifting. on us. Yeah. But if we think of it as, okay, it's, it's like I'm riding on this big world serpent, you know, going through the waves yeah, and the yeah. more that, the more that i allow hmm. myself to let go and to become whatever this particular situation demands hmm. of me, right then the more potentialities
0: and possibilities i have right That's i, so I much yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's a much more cheerful metaphor, the server than the guy stuck in the labyrinth.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I mean, there's not a lot. There's not a lot we can do if we stay there. If we stay with the, I yeah, mean, yeah. think the labyrinth is a great is a great conceptualization. But if we use that concept, then there's really nothing more to say. It's like, oh, well, here we go. Yeah, because um,
0: you're just stuck with uh, Kafka's K, you know, and all his various fates, whether it's the castle or the trial or whatever, and, and that's it. And it's like. Kafka himself, I don't think ever found his way out of the labyrinth. And um, we don't have to stay stuck there, but I like this surfer thing that Deleuze yeah. cheerfully brings out, I think in this, that, that may be one of like the, the, the hidden positive images in this essay that I, that I think is, is cheerful and worth thinking about. And the more I think about it, I like the idea of surfing the waves as a, because um, traditionally throughout mythological history, the ocean is thought of as a serpent. It's Ouroboros or Okeanos, the world encircling serpent. And so I like that idea that you can take the serpent. You don't have to let it bind you in coils like a boa constrictor trying to suffocate you to death, but you can surf it. You can ride the snake, ride, you know, like Jim Mm -hmm. Morrison. That was one of his primary uh, metaphors in the doors with riding the snake, riding the serpent and make it work for you. Make its labyrinthine, uh, sinewiness sinuousness work for you uh that's the challenge i think is, is how do we make it work for each one of us right and we might say that part of deleuze's
1: aim uh was to help create new concepts that we could use as these situations keep shifting and changing around us right if we're stuck to one particular sense of self one life script one goal one political ideology or political party, then we're really ensnared uh, within the mechanisms of
0: control. But yeah, then you let the, the serpent strangle you in that case instead exactly. of making it work for you.
1: Exactly. And so I'm just curious. I mean, you know Deleuze better than I do. So what do you think are some Deleuzean concepts that uh, the Deleuze or Deleuze and
0: Guattari invented as a response to this serpentine situation? Well, the rhizome and the nomad are are two that spring to mind. But the problem with the rhizome is that uh, it's great that it's anti-arborescent. It's anti, you know, the plane of organization, which is built up on strata. And the problem with strata is that they're all lawful. They all obey laws. And anytime an entity uh, appears on one of these strata in the arborescent model, you're locked in. And there's all kinds of laws and rules and things imposed upon you, but with the nomad, you can deterritorialize from many of these strata and uh, move around any I was going to say, the problem, <clears throat> the problem of the rhizome is that it's basically a labyrinth. It's, it's another version of the labyrinth idea that there's no beginning point, there's no ending point. That's all wonderful, but I think that <clears throat> the nomad idea is a much better idea with the idea that, of tracing lines of flight. From all regimes of capture, from all apparatuses of semi-capture that want to capture you and bind you into this or that level of the social hierarchy, there's always a line of flight. And this is the cheerful thing that I take from Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus is that no matter what uh, level on the strata that you're in, there's always a line of flight available to you that you can take and deterritorialize and go elsewhere. You just have to be aware of it and be aware that there's another there's another yeah. line of flight.
1: Yeah, we, we might see that develop here hmm. as Delis saying, well, whatever line of flight you take, hmm. you'll find that the, the 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 strata around you keeps shifting to enclose you in some way or to, to guide you or mold you in some way. But that's all right because then you just shift again.
0: Yes. It's it, becomes,
1: it becomes much more of a continuous stream of becoming, as we said, than... Um, just one subject going through this line of flight.
0: Yeah, the shaman is uh, like something that uh, he holds up as a model of a becoming animal. The shaman is always becoming animal because every time the shaman territorializes and traces a line of flight out onto, let's say, the astral plane, he's always transforming into an animal, either a bird as he's flying through the upper world, or a beast as he's going down into the underworld. Let's, let's say in Mesoamerican shamanism, it's the jaguar. The jaguar and, and the eagle are the two forms that they like The Mesoamerican shamans like to, to territorialize and trace lines of flight through. But there's always that line of flight available. And I like the shamanic model too, because the shaman is never captured or bound by a particular social formation. The shaman is always the one who says, I have this technique of ecstasy, to quote Mircho Eliade, that I've inherited that enables me to trace a line of flight to get away from all you guys. And I can go out here onto the astral plane and surf this thing in a becoming animal modality that does not, it enables me to have all these new creative possibilities that you guys stuck in the tribal social formation are just stuck with. You're the hunter. You're the gorgeous woman. You're the, the priest, whatever the, formation happens to be that nails you down. The shaman is always a becoming other, a becoming something else through ter- tracing lines of flight. And the shaman is like another t- a type of nomad, a like a, a sort of a nomad of consciousness. consciousness. Right.
1: Uh, That's quite interesting because that takes us back to Burroughs, who Deleuze mentions in this essay. Uh, we can see the, the Beats, the Beats as a generation of nomads for something like yeah. the modern age, right? Mm-hmm. And that was... I think one idea specifically in the 60s when uh, the Beats and um, Deleuze and Grisari were operating this, this kind of tune, uh, what, what was it? Turn on, tune in, drop out.
0: Yeah, that's the <laughs> idea. Right?
1: Like don't, don't follow this mode of consciousness that's being developed by our society. Uh, try these drugs that will give you a limited experience and then use that experience to turn off right those conceptual modes of control right and i feel like burroughs if if the if the beats were modern nomads then burroughs was experimenting with contemporary technologies of shamanism right yeah i think how do i how do i get myself into that stream of pure becoming yeah if i'm Uh i'm not not a i'm not a mesoamerican shaman I'm a guy living in New York in the you know 50s and 60s. Um, what techniques do I have available to enter into that stream of pure becoming?
0: I like thinking of him as a kind of uh, postmodern shaman, as a kind of or neo modern, whatever the term is, a shaman. And that's, that's Burroughs has always been one of my heroes, and I can never quite figure out why. Because I, I read biographies, you know, I read uh, literary outlaw by Ted, uh, what's his name? I forget his name. Uh, but I, I always idolized Burroughs for some reason, even though most people would say, oh, he was drug addicted. He was on heroin his whole life. He was just a junkie. But I always, for some reason, saw him as like a model in some way because he always found a way around every social formation that bonds you into a specific identity. And he, he was always able to trace a line of flight and to territorialize and go out. Whether it was through heroin or through his writing or moving to Tangier,
2: I was going um, to say, yeah. John, I, I moved to Tangier because of Burroughs. <laughs> oh,
0: Did You, really? you
2: actually <laughs> did
0: that. I loved that.
2: I that. I went to Tangier because of Burroughs. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and um, yeah, and, and then left. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Did sorry, you ever, sorry, Matthew.
0: You, but, did you ever did you ever read Paul Bowles?
2: Um, I yeah I have yes I have yeah one of
0: my all-time favorite writers and he's like uh uh an eccentric beat he's not like one of the beats because his writing style is conventional and traditional but man could that dude write I mean oh my god he wrote four novels and a million short stories and I read all of them and I liked him better than almost any of the other beats except for Bert. Yeah. and uh I just if, thought he was
2: amazing I can't yeah. remember what book of his but there's a bookshop in madrid that has a signed copy for sale of one of his books um by him and it was just like yeah it's just yeah it's an but yes yeah, so i've read both his wife was also a writer was she not
0: um, yeah gene uh-huh yeah she yeah. was an alcoholic uh writer who eventually i guess uh went insane she had to be institutionalized her story is very sad and both you know he was gay but he loved his wife so it was like and Burroughs, too, was married to a woman that he loved very much as well, except that he killed her, you know, and in an accident. Burroughs
2: you know, was gay as well, was he not?
0: Yeah, yeah he was bi, I guess, because yeah. he, he did love his wife. Um, and he was traumatized. He always used to say that he wouldn't have become a writer if he hadn't killed his wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, that's fucked up, <laughs> <laughs> dude Dude,
1: Paul Bowles... Uh, got some sort of grant from the US government to just go around North Africa and collect music from different
2: North yeah, African Yeah, I remember groups.
1: that. I really and there's agree. actually there's a yeah. collection available or that was mm-hmm. recently made available of all of his musical recordings from North Africa during that time the time during which he wrote Sheltering Sky. Um, I love that. Book. Yeah, yeah so so that's interesting that that he was able to just kind of con the government into giving him a bunch of money to go and and do this uh, cultural research that he wanted to do in North Africa. And he ended up traveling yeah. between the
0: United States. Uh, Bowles made it work. He was um, not drug addicted or anything like that. He was kind of a straight, uh, kind of a square in many respects, but he just made it work. He was so good. Though I read all four of those novels. Did you read The Spider's House uh, about Fez? Um, that novel blew me away. I was like, this is I have to study Fez now. And so I was studying uh, Islamic, North African Islamic art just so I could learn about how it interfaced with Bowles and, and his novel about Fez. And, it, and they have one of the most beautiful mosques that has ever been created in Fez. Uh, it's so translucently beautiful. It's, it's easily the rival of anything the West has produced as far as uh, cathedrals. Uh, the mosque at Fez, it, it just, it's amazing.
1: Well, I mean, going back to Burroughs, I think what's really interesting about him and his relation to this idea of control that also fascinated him for all of his working life, uh, I would say that the spirit that I get from Burroughs is one of constant experimentation, whether that's hmm. yeah. sexual experimentation, experimentation right. with drugs, experimentation right. with writing styles, making films, or like the weird kind of... Semi magical work that he
0: was doing with Brian Geison. Oh, I love Brian Geison. That's the whole thing. Another guy I wanted to mention. I love his art, Brian Geison. Yeah, right, right. But so
1: that's I mean we were thinking about what potential like escapes or uh, lines of flight or possibilities there are in relation to the control society, and Burroughs himself is a really fascinating case study in just what you can do if you have so, this too. mind. Yeah. If you have the mindset perfect. of experimentation.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's I, a perfect exemplar. I wouldn't, right? I wouldn't condone
1: everything he did, obviously. And I don't I think, necessarily think no, that no. taking, taking heroin and shooting your wife, it's not, <laughs> a bad idea. But, but just as a case study of, of what it's possible to do. Burroughs was always interested in that, right? What, Okay, so I'm faced with these mechanisms of control that are both around me in the terms of, in in terms of actual institutions, and also operating within me uh, in terms of identity and, and my sense of fixed, permanent self. Um, so, what can I do to disrupt that, or to to modify it, to change it, to make myself something else? Right. I mean, again, I think. Uh, he, he suffered a lot through much of his life because of yeah. uh, the toll of this experimentation. But right. it, it does go to show you that if you take on that spirit, a lot of things are possible. You take on the spirit of the shaman, oh, the, oh, yeah. the way the Burroughs did with Geisen and their experiments. Or you take yeah. on the spirit of the nomad in the way that the Beats did. Yeah, it's not entirely closed off by the society's control.
0: For, for me, when I think of the Beats, I, I think of those three guys, Paul Bowles, William Burroughs, and Brian Geisen. For me, those three are the core. And you don't hear much talk about Geisen or Bowles. Um, but I, I Kerouac was good. That's I mean, On the Road's a great book. But I didn't care much for anything else he did. And I, I don't care for Ginsburg. And I don't like any of the other poets, Gregory Corso or any of those people. I, I think they're all clones. But those three guys were like the, the architects of what I think of as the Beats. And all three of them living in North Africa and Tangier. And just, uh, they're totally eccentric. They're outside of Western civilization. And they're just deterritorialized from it. And they're creating a whole rhizomatic world. Um, those three guys. And, and they all knew each other and hung out. And, you know, I don't know. I, I love those guys. I worship those guys. I wish I had been one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I if think I'm you still wild. can. <laughs> i think you still can and now i mean that that's kind of,
1: one of those that's the goal behind things like this is building again that kind of new community uh whether that's just me and the two of you or anyone who's listening to this sure. right um yeah building that idea that yeah we can actually find new modes of being within this present situation however
0: bleak it might be on the other hand uh, Another one of my uh, all-time favorite writers is H.P. Lovecraft. And I do sort of like his life too, even though it's the exact opposite. Lovecraft was like, uh, he wrote all of his stories um, and refused to get a job. He just refused, refused, refused. He would not work a nine-to-five job, even though he was making a pittance from selling his short stories to weird tales. And so he just had to find himself living with his aunt's you know, in their house, and they bought him a house, and he couldn't make the payments on that house, so he lost the house. Then went to live at the aunt's houses, which I think is where he wound up uh, in his last days. But he refused, refused, refused to conform to the apparatus of capture of the nine to five. And and uh, I I love H. B. Lovecraft. I just even though it's it's not as exciting or romantic as as Burroughs and Guys and the Bulls, but I still like him a lot, too. I, I love his resistance. He was like Melville's Bartleby. You know, I would prefer not. <laughs> yeah. He was like the living incarnation of Bartleby the Scrivener. I'd prefer not to. No, thank you.
1: Right. <laughs> like if, if the Beats, if the beats uh, de-territorialized and became nomads and just, you know, decided to live on the road or in Tangier... Uh, Lovecraft was kind of the opposite. He would not leave Providence, right? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, that's, what I mean. but yeah, yeah, yeah. that's another, that's another road to take was him just saying, but he okay. still
0: resisted. He was right. like, uh, even though he's living in good old fashioned Providence, refused to leave. He was just nonetheless, this force of pure resistance. None, nonetheless, you know, you, there's, there's no way you're going to get this guy to capitulate. He's not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I love that. It's like uh, passive uh, resistance, so, you know. I love that guy.
2: It's right. it's like pure great refusal. Like McHugh's is the great refusal, is it not? Yeah. Just,
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And um and and just to come back, so is that is that what we we think Deleuze is saying to do to do that to live on the edges and just ride within it and become what you are the best you can within the, where we find ourselves against against the conform like what we're being tried forced to conform to so is that what we're is that what we're coming to
1: let's let's take a look maybe at the very end of the final section um the program program element right yeah and so i'm just curious because again the the tone of the essay seems pretty ambivalent to me um let's see let's just Look at how he's ending it here. One of the most, cons- so he talks about the potential use of things like unions, right? And he says, well, this is a question that will have to be decided. How, how much can the resistance of the past actually impact the current situation? And then he just says, it's up to young people to discover what they're being made to serve, just as their elders discovered without difficulty. The telos of the uh, of the disciplines, right? The endpoint or the goal of these disciplines that were being forced through. Be. The coils of a serpent are even more complex than the burrows of a molehill, right? Um, so yeah, that, that's a pretty ambiguous or ambivalent ending. It uh, is. Yeah. He's not saying, "Oh, we need to do this or we need to do that." I feel he, you know, Deleuze and Guattari might explore possibilities in other works of theirs, but. For this essay, yeah, he, he just seems to be saying, these are the conditions that I see on the horizon, and it's going to be up to other people right, of the future to, to figure it out. I mean, he, he threw himself out of his window in Paris in 1995, so this wasn't quite his problem to solve, but it's, it's our problem to solve. And so that's why I thought that this essay might make a good,
0: um, a good text for our first episode. Oh, it's been a great text for our first first episode. I, maybe we should end here because it's been awesome. I think we... we'll see how it goes. But yeah, there's there's a lot to kind of build on here, with with this
1: being the outline of the contemporary situation we find ourselves in, and then uh, figures like Burroughs or Bowles offering possible models of resistance. You know, as we go on with other texts in future episodes. This can be something that we go back to, to to kind of see, um, how does this relate to the bigger picture of our current moment?
2: I was thinking that as we were speaking um, throughout it, that yeah, we we'd hark back to this one. Uh, Great. Right. Yeah. Um, I hope I didn't derail us uh, too much when I when I messed up a little bit there in the middle. But yeah.
0: No. Any any, no, no. any thought that, yeah. that the text provokes is is welcome thought, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: no, this This is really great. I, I look forward. I mean, just
0: this has been great. All right, great. this has been awesome. Great. <laughs> you guys thank were great. I'll see you next time. And, thanks. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, okay, Leon, I'm going to sign off. Um, you, Matt, Matt okay. John,
1: thanks. Bye. Th- thank okay, Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.